This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello and welcome to the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Leon Logan-Nathan, one of your hosts. The other one is uh, joining me via Zoom. How are you, Pete? Hello, mate. I'm well. What's going on in your world today? Uh, the day went by very, very quickly, so I'm uh. still looking, I'm sure, a little frazzled, so I hope you don't <laughs> use this, uh, this video. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just went by in a massive blur uh, of meetings and, and other things. Uh, so if I'd rung you today like I thought about doing and saying, let's go and get some lunch, you would have said, bugger off, I'm busy. Uh, I'm looking at the number of emails that I've got here that I haven't actually touched yet, and <laughs> I'll be putting in some hours after this podcast. Right, okay. Tell you. Right, I'll I'll book in in advance in future. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, mate, we've got um, uh, a special guest on the podcast tonight. Um, someone who I've known for quite a while. Someone who I think I just introduced you to about ten fifteen minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, uh, someone who I can I can get a rise from pretty easily by mentioning <laughs> uh, Rupert Murdoch, but um, <laughs> he's a good guy and I enjoy his company. We get together once in a while and we shoot the breeze and uh, he's a very well-connected Territorian. Let me introduce to you and our listeners, Mr. Greg Thompson, the General Manager of NT News. How are you, Greg? Good evening, Leon. Good evening, Peter. Great to be here uh, on the podcast. Yeah, Welcome so did I get your title right, Rex? Yeah, absolutely. That is my title, General Manager. Yeah, sometimes I forget these things and then I've got to you know, <laughs> backtrack. <laughs> so um, you've been, what, manager or general manager of the NT News now for how long? Yeah, so I've been back here six years. I've come and gone from the NT News um, a number of times over the years, so... Yeah. I've been general manager for the past six years and um, uh, while I started here as a journalist a very long time ago, I'm not really in the newsroom these days whilst I'm, you know, my brain thinks like a journalist most days. Um, I leave that to the editor, Matt Williams, um, and the newsroom, but my role is really sort of running the commercial business of the NT News and, look, it's a challenging business. The media business is um, is under a lot of pressure, not just here but right around the world, but... Um, we get to live and work in a place that's been my home for you know virtually all of my life, and yeah, I love it. Good, good. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about uh, you. where were you born, by the way? So I was actually born in um, Sydney, in the in the western suburbs. But I don't. Re- I call myself a, a born and bred Territorian because my parents came to the territory in 1972. I was I was a baby, so I don't recall anywhere else. Um, my my family packed their bags in Western Sydney and. Dad uh, took an opportunity working for Nabalco um, at the uh, the Borksite uh, mine and alumina um, treatment of refinery in Nullumboy. So mum and dad and their three young kids um, left Sydney, um, moved to uh, the wilds of uh, northeast Arnhem Land and dad had uh, and still does have a brother and sister who made that trek ahead of them. So they sort of paved the way for our family but um, it was a an instrumental part, I guess, about in us staying there for so long is to have family in the Territory um, and uh, as a result I've got a very long list of cousins uh, and uncles and aunts that uh, who still live in Allenboy today. 
That's amazing. That is really amazing because mm. normally you'd expect just your family or a family to be there. You've literally got cousins and aunties and uncles. I mean, the population of Nullumboy is, what, 3,000 or something, isn't it? It's about 3,300, I think, now. It was 4,000 and something prior to the curtailment. But, yeah, so, look, Dad's, Dad's one of six, so to have... At, at, for much of my childhood, he had sort of three siblings there and and they've all had children, many of them are parents now. Um, my, uh, I think my grandmother has got 40 great-grandchildren, so she's been wow. blessed with a big, big mob and probably, um, you know, half of them live in the Northern Territory. So, mm. Yeah, I've been out there a couple of times and I did, I remember one time I just took a drive around the, the burbs. I mean, is it? I can't even remember. Is there more than one suburb there, by the way? <laughs> yeah, look, it's a, it, look, it's a pretty. You can walk from one end of town uh, to the other very quickly. I've done it plenty of times. So, yeah. um, it's it was um, it's pretty remarkable when you look back that um, the Balco, who was then, um, uh, you know, it was uh, Alu Swiss was the the major owner of it. Rio Tinto own it today, but they, you know they built an entire town and town infrastructure. In order to to process minerals, you know there was nothing there. Mm. They built an entire, you know, the, they built the Woolworths, they built the power station, they they built the school, um, you know, um, they built all of that infrastructure, uh, which in today's dollars must be, you know, uh, in the billions. And when my parents stepped off the plane there in nineteen seventy two or whatever, they were given a house, mm. fully furnished. Um, Red dirt front yard. You had to sort of grow gardens um, from scratch, but everyone brand new houses, brand new furniture, and shown. There's the bus. Get on that bus every day to go to work. And my, what did your dad do? My dad was in. Um, he was a control room operator in the alumina refinery. So he he liaised with the shiploading facilities that load then alumina and um, and bauxite today. So uh, dad did that job for a very long time before. Um, um, retiring um, and then leaving leaving the territory in about two thousand and five. So he did. Uh, they did a big stint in the NT. Yeah. Um, they retired in New South Wales, but they um, travelled back up to see family. Um, but you know, one of the things my dad loves driving, and I've got to tell you, I don't know how many times I've driven to Sydney as as a uh, as a child, but um, I love it. But my mother, she's not she's not big on getting in the car. And, driving those distances these days. Mm. Uh, the only way she gets to see uh, myself or my children uh, are on a plane. So. Mm. <laughs> so he used to drive from Go to Sydney. Yeah. So in, and, and interestingly, in the 70s and the 80s, it was a bush track. So bush track from Mullumboy to Catherine was a three-day drive. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, in crossing the Goeta River is a major river crossing that, you know, literally the car would go underwater. I remember looking out through the windscreen as you crossed the goiter. Jesus Christ. Wow. It's a pretty pretty fancy road by um, the Central Arm Highway today. Is a, you know, it's virtually all weather and there's bridges over the goiter and the major rivers, but you can do it in about eight hours, Catherine to Nullamboy today, but it's mm. still um, a fairly long drive when you consider that uh, Air North do it in style in one hour and twenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, yeah, so I just I, I'm trying to picture it. So you, <laughs> you've got a car driving through a riverbed, uh, a river crossing, and and, and the, the, the wind. Briefly see underwater is the vehicle yeah, yeah. 
fjords across the goida. The goida used to be the highlight of the for for the hour or two leading up to it. The tension in the car would just grow and grow. My mother would be apoplectic with stress <laughs> because it was quite a bit, it was quite a difficult challenge. And yeah, Dad migrated through the years through Hiluxes and Land Cruisers that you know actually operated. For many years, he drove old Land Rovers, which invariably uh, managed to stop middle of the river. Oh, and God. And hand winch with a turf. Or by then, you know, you're pretty well mentally frazzled. Yeah. As kids, however, we thought it was hilarious. We loved it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what and, 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 and fucking infested too. But yes. you both you drive. Yeah. Got so, but, so, but, you know, in that era, you know, I'm talking the 80s, um, Many years later, I was about 15, we pulled up at that Goiter River and saw a big crocodile there, but certainly mm. you know, we used to swim in it as little kids. And it's a lot like Darwin that, you know, there were rivers that we were swimming in in the 80s and 90s around Darwin that you wouldn't swim in today. And, yeah. Um, Arnhem Land, um, whilst it didn't have the same degree of, of um, crocodiles being shot out, it was still pretty wild and hairy and um, even to this day the, the road into Gove, um, if it's wet weather, it's, it's a challenge and experience mm. for drivers. This is the same crossing, I'm sure, Leon, that Kendall Trudgeon was telling us about. Right. It, it has to be because there's only yeah. one road out of Gove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he described it quite similarly to, to what Greg's just described. I just I don't mean, remember Kendall talking about being underwater, though. Well, yeah, he, he said they had to cross the river and then nowadays there's a bridge there and stuff. But, I mean, this is stuff that Hicks that's from the city man. couldn't imagine. That sense of isolation in that. In the, so I don't think we got TV in Nullamboy until 1976 and even then it was ABC TV. Then we had Channel 8 then or Channel 9 yeah. as we know it now. Um, we got that in about 1978 but it was actually recorded on big tapes and played back a week afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Once the so census We get Monday night's news a week later. <laughs> Jeez, that's so, no good if there's a cyclone rolling in. <laughs> yeah. But it also means I'm hopeless at quiz nights because, you know, if you're at a quiz night and anyone wants to talk about commercial TV, yeah. right, yeah. I'm hopeless. Yeah. I'm an ABC file. I can tell you anything that moved and I'm a big <laughs> on ABC, but. But uh, it's a part of my life that I missed out. So. Yeah. Right. And, and is it true that um, Gove is a couple of degrees cooler than Darwin? Yeah, it is. It's, it is. It's um, where it's situated on the, the tip of the, um, the um, carpet area, the, the, um, the way the winds blow, um, you know, it's the northwesterlies are hot and humid here in Darwin, whereas in Nullumbwe it's a, a very different um, climate. Still hot and humid in October and November, but um, they'll get rain in July um, every now and then and probably a, a cooler, dry season as well. Mm -hmm. And so you had uh, some siblings as well? <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've, I've got uh, an older brother, Peter, um, who's um, in the Territory, living in Alice Springs, and uh, a younger brother, Chris, who lives in Brisbane. He, he, he comes back to the Territory consulting and a sister who lives in Brisbane. So Right, so they all left Gove. Pretty much, yeah. Look, Gove's one of those places, um, you know, my father worked, a lot of my friends worked for Nabalco. You kind of become a, um, you know, you put on the overalls and the, and the, and the PPE equipment and, and, and do your trade in Gove. 
um, or you leave, um, you go to university or you do other things. And in my case, I went through school in Nullamboy, did all of my years there from preschool to, to year 12. Um, and then I literally, um, I uh, during um, year 10 and year 11, I was writing stories for the MT News, uh, particularly sports stories, and sending them over. And during my school holidays, I used to get a lot of um, work experience opportunities. So I'd humbug the editor here to come and do some some time um, in the in the newsroom. And so by the time I finished year 12, they offered me a job. So I started as a cadet journalist literally three days after my English exam, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, packed up in, that was 1987, and, yeah, came to live in Darwin. And um, then what happened? Yeah, so as I say, I've come and gone a, a number of times. Um, mm. The um, Early on, I was uh, writing sport. It was a great job. Um, the um, I then found myself um, working at the Centralian Advocate in Alice Springs about uh, two years uh, two years later. Um, love Alice Springs, met my wife um, there while we were living in Alice Springs. And, you know, Alice Springs, similar to Darwin, as a young reporter, you, you working on the Centralian Navigate, then, you know, it's turbocharged uh, journalism. You know, you're writing court one day, you're writing politics the next, you're writing sport. Um, you get a lot of experience very quickly. And um, for whatever reason why, I, I quickly sort of, I was covering politics um, in Alice Springs. Um, and at that time... Uh, I was then transferred back to the MT News. Um, again, I think I was writing politics at that time um, and was there for a, a number of years. I um, then did uh, a brief stint, so about three years stint in the Perrin government years um, as a press secretary working for... Um, uh, I initially started with uh, with uh, the then lands minister, Max Altman, and... I don't know if oh, you know, yes. Max Microphone, Max. Microphone, Max, <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm, uh, I don't tell this story a lot, but I, I was actually one of four people in the room the day that happened. So, oh, so, my gosh. Do you know about that, Pete? Tell me. Oh, it's, uh, it's legend. <laughs> yeah, look, um, the minister there. Like that sounds good. Max took objection to a line of question that uh, – that uh, the reporter Jeremy Thompson it was a I, it was a fair enough line of questioning, but the reporter the uh, minister didn't like it, so he took his microphone off his um, off his shirt, grabbed the cord, wrapped it around uh, the reporter's throat <laughs> two or three times, and gave it a yank, <laughs> and then yelled at get out. So um, <laughs> I was a twenty two year old young reporter um, uh, looking there, going, "What do I do next?" Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a legend that I leapt up and yelled, oh, minister. I don't actually think I did that, but that's the legend. Um, and uh, I was later berated for um, for not leaning over and grabbing the, the video cassette out of the ABC cameraman's uh, <laughs> camera. I don't know if you know too many AB, any cameraman, but if you touch their equipment, oh, yeah. you're, uh, that was never going to happen. But yeah. so, um, I was only a press secretary for a number of weeks when that happened. Um, and um, so um, he was charged, though, wasn't he? I mean, he was I, charged, and he, he left. He left Parliament soon after. Oh, it's pretty outrageous behaviour, you know. Um, yeah. You look back on the uh, the wild antics that have happened over the over yeah. the oh, it's up there. It's 
it's probably top five material. I I'm just pleased to hear that he was actually charged. I thought you were going to say it was, you know, all fair as love and war and everybody went on about their day. Oh, look, um, you can't lie with the video, Peter. It's yeah, uh, true. A, a number of years later, I think I was in Las Vegas um, on a holiday with my wife and, you know, one of those programs where, you know, when politicians go off yeah, was yeah. on cable TV. <laughs> I'm sitting in a hotel room in America watching Max Altman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he was on it, was he? He was. Oh, it went viral. I mean, oh, it, wow. this went viral before viral yeah. was a thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that, you you know, you, you can't lie with the video because um, I don't know if either of you guys have seen the new Borat movie, but yes. it is hysterical <laughs> listening to Rudy Giuliani try and dig himself out of this hole that the video just, as you say, tells 100% the truth and we all know what he, what he was up to. That's right. I've, I've seen some of the video and, yeah, I, I hear his version of events, but good luck with that. Exactly. So. Even if, you know, yeah, just, you know, even if, if, if it was doctored, yeah. right, yeah. the fact that, the fact is he had his hand on her bottom, you know, right. <laughs> and, or, or close to it. And, and he's in a hotel room drinking <laughs> scotch with a girl that he knows is underage and he willingly go someone uh, sasha baron cohen actually said so why did he feel the need to go into the bedroom to take the microphone off yeah maybe she let him there but i don't think he knew she was underage at the time no probably she was a reporter yeah. he was only there yeah. when he came in screaming uh, and said she, my daughter 15 take me instead uh, you know. he said she's too old for you <laughs> I don't know. Too many reporters that do um, their interviews in hotel rooms. No, um, exactly. That's the place for it. So, yeah. uh, well. so uh, all right. So you had some pretty interesting times in Alice Springs, and then and then you came back to Darwin after that. Yeah. So so um, I was reporting at the MT News, as I say, politics. I was then um, a press secretary for about three years. Left, I think, during the Stone government. Era, okay, um, but came back to the NTNU straight away. Which, um, you know, at the time I remember, you know, the, the sort of two types of press secretaries there's the card carrying um, political type, and then there, there are others that sort of run away from it. I, I've never been a member of the CLP, or you know, I never really got involved with the elections and so forth. Um, I just sort of did my job working for government, is how I saw it, but um. So I did leave there, went straight back to the MT News and I was a police reporter, um, which was my way of getting as far away from politics, I think, at the time <laughs> as possible um, and loved being a police reporter and, I, and yeah, I, I enjoyed it and did that, uh, I think, pretty well. Love, I love uh, chatting with police, love stories about crime. Um, you know, um, during that era, you know, a highlight, I was chief of staff by then but I was still writing police was that... Mm whole uh, arrest of Brendan Abbott in Darwin. Ah, yeah, I was going to ask about that. You know, that was one of the highlights, um, you know, chasing around with Territory Response Group people. Yeah. And, uh, look, the Territory is just one of those places where um, it's a pretty amazing news beat. And whilst I look, if I look back at all my time in, in the newsroom, I migrated from reporter into chief, chief of staff and then different management roles, um, to, you know, the further you go in a management role, the further you kind of get away from the newsroom. But re reporting is, a, is my absolute love. And, I you know, it's a job I could do tomorrow. It's a job when I get sick of managing the business I'd uh, I'd pick up tomorrow because, 
you meet different people every day, you talk to different people, um, and it's dead set one of those jobs where when you come to work at 8 o'clock, you've got no idea what's going to happen. Mm. And there's an excitement that goes with that. Um, but I also think there's, a, you know, I just love the opportunity to meet and talk with different people um, and, and tell their stories. Um, and I don't do enough of that. Well, I don't do any of it these days. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's been the part of my journalism career that I, that I love. Um, from, you know, as I say, as chief of staff, the chief of staff runs the reporters, if you like, and, and sets the daily news agenda. I did that for a number of years um, into the early 2000s and then managed our free weekly um, here in Darwin. Um, uh, and then my wife, um, my wife, who's a teacher, an English teacher, got a contract in Hong Kong and uh, with our two young children we packed up and went to live in Hong Kong, um, wow. which was uh, pretty crazy, pretty amazing. Uh, my daughter Grace was only about 18 months at the time. Harry was about three and a half. I was going to be Mr Mum, but I wasn't very good at that, Peter. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we soon did what every other Hong Kong Chinese family does and that's employ domestic helpers. Yeah, and yeah. I went out and worked. My wife worked um, in the in the Hong Kong Chinese uh, government schools uh, teaching English and I worked at the South China Morning Post as a as a sub-editor on the foreign desk. So Wow. So, how, how, I mean, how was that? What, what, can you picture a sort of a moment in time when you just thought, well, you know, we're not in Kansas now? Well, you know, like everyone lives in high-rise apartments. It was our first instance of city living and we had little young children who we used to running through backyards and, and whatnot. Um, we didn't spend anywhere near as many years in Hong Kong as I would have liked because we quickly realised that it was, while well, Leanne and I and my wife, uh, we loved it uh, and it was a great place to work and a great place to live. It's not a great place to bring up young, young kids, um, particularly when you've got a big family back in Australia. Um, so I, we were there for about 18 months when my then boss back from News Corp in the Territory, Don Kennedy, offered me uh, to move back to Alice Springs to run the St. Charlie and Advocate. So we made this sort of pretty amazing move from Darwin to Hong Kong and then mm. I was sitting there explaining to my wife one day that we're now going to do the reverse step to go from Hong Kong <laughs> to Spring. Like, <laughs> took, took a bit of convincing, I've got to tell you. Um, yeah. But and so I've got a brother in Alice Springs with his family and it was great to sort of reconnect with them um, Alice Springs is a beautiful town and and the Centralian Advocate um, and that job that I had. We were, um, back in that, that period in the early 2000s, we had 35 staff in Alice Springs and our own printing press and a bi-weekly paper and it was very successful and, and a lot of fun. And whilst I'd managed um, the business, I also, uh, you know, helped, helped in the newsroom and relieved the editor when he was a... So I was, I was hands-on as a journalist there as well and got the opportunity to write as well as manage the business. So, But, yeah, leaving Hong Kong was... Um, I often wonder what would have happened if we'd stayed there because it was a, I could go back and live there tomorrow. It's an amazing city, uh, incredible city, um, and great people as well. So, mm. But we, we made the move. And and how did you find that transition? Because you know Hong Kong, uh, as you said, high rise, 
small area geographically, massive population, and then you know, find yourselves in Alice again, uh, which, you know, 35,000 people or thereabouts and, you know, a much more familiar, obviously, but it, it's definitely a change in pace. Yeah, it is, but I can't. It's a change of pace that we're aware of. You know, Leanne and I met there years earlier. Um, you know, we knew where we were going to. We knew where we were going to live. We kind of knew where the kids were going to go to school. We sort of mapped out that mm. in mind. So, as much as it was a big adventure, we kind of knew what we were heading into. Um, my wife had one of the best jobs she's ever had there. She worked at the Alice Springs School of the Air. Um, so she she had this uh, amazing time travelling Central Australia, mm. you know, um, staying with remote families and hooking up via the internet or the or the radio, depending on what technology was being used. So we enjoyed it there, and certainly our kids, um, you know, they were great times. So. Mm. And um, then and then you kind of what drifted back to Darwin, did you? No, so um, an opportunity so within News Corp presented in Perth of all of all places. So um, I've lived and worked, other than that brief stint in Hong Kong, um, an opportunity come uh, to be editor in chief of the community newspaper group in Perth, um, which is a network of thirty-one newspapers across metropolitan Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, you know they were they were uh, six fabulous years there. Um, you know, my job really was uh, managing people and managing the commercial um, interests of those of those papers. Uh, great city, Perth, uh, amazing place to live. Um, but you know, people say um, it felt very remote, um, remote to the from East Coast Australia. Um, you know, for someone who spent most of the time in, in in the top end, I never thought I'd find living in Perth remote, but that's how it felt. So, um, where whereabouts did you live in Perth? We lived at uh, in Woodlands, which is near ah, yes, um, yes. near um, Scarborough in Loo. So, yes. um, yeah, a nice part of the world. Very nice part. Sydney Beach was five minutes away. Yeah. Um, used to love swimming. I still love swimming in the ocean. Don't get a lot of opportunity up here to do it these days. <laughs> Um, and uh, you know, just it is uh, an amazing um, climate there, so a top spot to live. But we were there through those boom period in in WA when they were just crying out for people, and mm. kind of we could sense the end of that boom, and we could sense opportunities drying up. And um, we moved. Um, you know, I was looking around for different opportunities. The media business has been pretty challenged. Um, Thought my days uh, at the NT News that, you know, they were well and truly behind me. So I left um, and uh, I won a public service role um, in the Department of Chief Minister as uh, Director of Communications from Perth. So we moved back um, with that role. Um, but I was literally only there six months when um, the general manager of vacancy uh, came up here at the NT News and my then boss at the time happened to be chairman of the business in Perth where I'd spent that time and we had a phone call. And um, so I had uh, one of the shortest lived um, public service careers. Um, <laughs> uh, it was literally six months to the day, I think. And then, um, yeah, came back to the NT News, um, working in an office where I, you know, first walked into as a 16-year-old or work experience uh, many years mm. earlier. 
So familiar. Amazing. Amazing. Familiar, yeah, very familiar, but familiar being on the other side of the desk rather than mm. the side of the desk. So. Mm. so you've been doing that for six years now? Yes. So, and look, through that time, um, you know, as you know, the, the advertising model that's funded journalism has been seriously challenged. And look, it, it'll probably, we, we, across other News Corp businesses this year, we saw news cease printing of daily newspapers and regional newspapers in yes. Queensland and NT, which is recognition that the advertising model that had funded journalism in those communities has has come to an end. And and sadly, we saw a, an element of that in Alice Springs this year as well when we stopped printing the mm. printed edition of the Centralian Advocate. Um, and... You know, I hope it's not under my watch, but I suspect it, it, it will be at some point. But we will stop printing, um, you know, hard copies of the NT News at some point. Um, how and where, you know, I don't know. Um, the advertising model is still a very successful model here. Um, but our strategy um, to fund journalism is really around subscriptions and driving subscription revenue and... Um, you know, we've got, uh, you know, nearly 9,000 uh, subscribers of the NT News um, each month. Uh, we print about 9,000. So we're very close to um, shortly having more digital subscribers to the NT News than we have printed copies of the newspaper. And that's been a very successful part of News Corp's transition. Um but it's been a it's been a transition that's been a little late in coming. Um, you know, we've seen media uh, empires dwindle, and we've seen newspapers close because they didn't transition fast enough. And that's a regret of mine that you know we too in Australia um, the digital the days of giving away our content for free um, went on for too long, and we're unable to monetize that, and therefore. Uh, we've devalued journalism in the process. And um, if you go back um, probably four, three, four years ago, Nullumboy, my old hometown, lost its local paper. And when you look at what's happened to the social fabric of the town and, and the role that media play, not just newspapers, uh, Gove FM and other media there do a great job of, of filling that void. But in the absence of, of journalists, um, a lot of media content is unfiltered social media um, where the loudest voices often prevail. They're not often the smartest voices. Mm. Uh, rarely are they moderated. Um, mm. And, you know, it, it's a challenge. So um, journalism is important for, for our communities um, and nowhere more important than, you know, remote communities, I think. Mm. Greg, I've got so many questions for you. Um, my, so, so my background prior to what I do now is, is in commercial radio and, you know, I've, I've really watched with interest from afar, uh, the media in general and, and as you know, you rightly described they're they're slow adapting to the sort of the new environment being the digital environment. I've often felt as though that traditional media has sort of not known what to do. It, it's felt like that. They seem sort of caught in between. And, and Leon and I have often talked about this subscription model and 
I'm, I'm slowly but surely coming around to the fact that without the subscription model, then as you just, uh, you summed it up perfectly, it's, it's funding the journalism. And without that, what you do is you get this utter crap on social media that the masses pass on as fact. And then you get situations where Bill Gates is accused of creating the coronavirus. So what, I guess one, why was it so slow to adapt this new technology? And I suppose if you could articulate a bit further, why should people be paying for their online subscriptions, like sell the benefits of it? Yeah, look, I think um, if you look at the NT News, where three and a half years ago I think we entered the subscription business, probably three to four years too late. So um, for that, we've been, um, the ntnews.com.au has been highly successful for, you know, uh, really, you know, all through 2010, probably for, be- for the best part of 10 years. But it's cherry-picked the best of our printed NT News content, presented it online um, with no ability to monetize that or get. So it's all been, a, you know, as you recall, Peter, from, from radio, it's all about the audience. It's all about mm. generating that audience. Um, and we were very successful at it, but um, at the same time, it wasn't generating a return. And, um, you know, our newsroom at its peak, um, you know, it was, you know, 55, uh, you know, 60 journalists. Um, it's, a, it's a big number of people to yeah. feed. Um, and, you know, uh, today we're a newsroom of, you know, 25 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the... Um. Um, what we don't want that to be is a newsroom of, you know, five or six um, because when it becomes a newsroom of five or six, um, you probably won't have any television or radio commercial journalism in Darwin. You'll have a similar number in the ABC, um, which is a really, you know, a huge reduction um, in the size of, of of just the content that's being generated mm. uh, in the Territory. So, um you know, the cost of a subscription, um, you know, for most people for a week is less than a cup of coffee, you know, in perspective. That's what the cost of a subscription is, um, the cost of one cup of coffee per week. But what you get for that in the News Corp environment, you get all of the access to ntnews.com.au, including our digital replica editions. Um, but also it's the keys to the it's the keys to the vehicle for all of News Corp's content. So if you're a football supporter, um, the Herald Sun has the best football coverage in the in the country, so you can tap into that. If you're NRL, um, similarly with the Daily Telegraph, if you're a horse racing pundit, if you're a political observer, you might not necessarily agree with the editor's slant in the Australian, but it's the, you know, it along with the Sydney Morning Herald and the AHR web where people who observe politics go to read. So they're, they're all important ecosystems that, um, that you can access through a, through a subscription. And um, we've got some amazing data of our sort of, you know, I think it's 8,800 or thereabouts subscribers. Um, more than 60% of them download four, at least four replica edition copies per week. So mm. what that shows is it's a highly engaged. You know, we've all had subscriptions that you subscribe to and then you don't use and, you know, um, um, our subscription audience is, is highly engaged. They they visit us at least four times a week. 
Um, and, you know, for a good majority of them, they read that replica edition every day. Um, and personally, as someone who reads the NT News uh, on the iPad most mornings, it's just a better way of reading the news. Um, mm. I follow the replica edition. I, I, you know, start at the front and work my way to the back, but I know where the sports section is. I know where the comics are. I know where to find Wicking's cartoon. So I enjoy navigating um, newspapers in that way. And it's, and for the bulk of subscribers, News Corp um, has an ambition for 900,000 subscribers this year. And I, I think we'll get there. Um, and their business model, okay, you can argue it was a little late coming, um, you know, is now a proven one, so much so that uh, News Corp divisions throughout the US and the UK are looking at the Australian model um, and transplanting that um, around the world. Right. So the Aussies we got... Data, we use data, um, Peter. Every reporter writes... Has, a, has access to daily data that shows what people are prepared to pay for that they've written. So they get real-time um, awareness. It's not, you know, crusty old editors telling people how, what they should write these days. The audience informs us uh, wow. as, to, as to what, um, you know. So if you, th- if you look at unique content of the NT News, like our court coverage, um, politics, um, you know, our business coverage even, you know, there was a, a view that business coverage is a particularly sexy, but they all drive strong subscriber growth. Mm. Um, and it isn't crocodiles and cyclones and crime that drives into new sales these days. It's, mm. um, you know, it's compelling local content. Mm. And what about, um, what about the slant? Uh it's, it's becoming increasingly frustrating these days when so many publications and TV stations are constantly pushing their agendas. Do, do you guys feel, you, know, you just said it's, it's driven by the, the readers, so do, do you feel the need to follow those slants or you know, this unbiased reporting of the news or particularly politics you know, being the major one these days? Um, but there's other areas as well. You, sometimes you feel like you need to read two or three versions from different outlets to figure out what the truth is behind things. Yeah, look, I, I think all all newspapers and most media websites these days have a perspective. You know, you call it bias, you can call it, you know, a left or right leaning, um, you know, on the political spectrum between, you know, left, centre and right, most media outlets are somewhere on that. Um, you know. Does it dictate or govern everything that they do? I don't think so. Um, for many years, the NT News editor's desk had an old Bakelite phone that was actually a hardwired copper line to the Bureau of Meteorology. And anyone who came into the newsroom, we used to joke and say that was the that was the phone that Rupert rang. <laughs> Rupert wanted, you know, to impart message into the newsroom. But um, there's a bit of a myth. You know, I think it's a bit of a myth um, I can't speak for the Daily Telegraph or the bigger papers. I was pretty familiar with them, and I and I, um, but I can speak for our regional newspapers. And if you look at the content that you know, whether it's Sydney management of News Corp or New York management of News Corp, Mr Murdoch or you know, um, other executives, I can't see the content they want to influence here in the territory. You know, mm. um, you know. Uh, 
yes, you can look at the Australian, um, if you look at newspapers like the Australian that have, you know, uh, yeah, I think they've moved away from a centrist reporting position to a, you know, a very strong right-wing stance um, on on particular issues. Um, you know, I, I believe that's the editor of the day's view of the world. You know, I don't think it's an instructed view of the world. Um, you know, look, I watch American politics from afar and I do shake my head at a lot of what happens over there. But, mm. um, you know, I think by and large the Australian media news call, um, Kevin Rudd has, you know, circulated a petition about against the power of the of News Corp and, and its newspaper monopoly in Australia. Well, um, you know, it it wasn't a problem when when it, when it was helping his political career, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and it's suddenly a problem now. Um, you know, as he reflects on his own political career, mm. um, was Kevin Rudd front and centre of? The Courier Mail when he was Prime Minister? I don't think he was. Um, you know, um, I'm sure he could point to examples of bias. Um, you can find bias in most media any day of the week. But I do think most most newspapers and most media outlets set out to tell and report um, as stra- in, in a straight manner. Mm. And, you know, the NT News at the last federal election um, you know, advocated for a short Labor government when every other editorial in the country advocated a return of the Morrison government. And that was a pretty brave step of the editor, Matt Williams. He's still copying a fair bit for it. <laughs> but, you know... Is, 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 is he copying it uh, for uh, going for a COP government in the last uh, election last month? Oh, look, I don't, I, I don't know. The point I'm trying to make with that, Leon, is, is he doesn't take instructions from anybody, you know, mm-hmm. And he wouldn't do the job if he did. Um, you know, in my time as Chief of Staff, I've not been an editor. Um, you know, I've never been directed to report in a particular way. Um, you know, to your earlier question, Peter, I think, you know, most people perceive that the media lean a particular way that their upward leadership might want them to lean and mm. that there's sort of group speak. And, look, you know, um, is that group or group you just said then? <laughs> uh, uh, group, group, <laughs> but it could be group uh, as well. Um, but, you know, I think for those editors, uh, you know, those editors, um, most editors should be brave enough to sort of, um, you know, put their interest, the, their readers' interest first. Mm. Yes, we are commercial businesses and I make that distinction in that um, monetising content um, is something we have to do. We don't get the $850 million a year that the ABC gets. Mm. Um, ABC in the Northern Territory do a bloody amazing job. Um, they're doing it with shrinking resources. Um, the, the ABC resourcing of regional um, Australian journalism is on the decline and that's, that's a real worry because... It's arguable that the ABC is more relevant in a community like the Northern Territory than it is in, uh, certainly if you measure the audiences, um, they're strongly endorsed by those regional audiences. But they operate, um, uh, you know, with taxpayer funding um, and good luck to them. Uh, We need those uh, diversity of voices. But other media, um, if we look at what's happened at nine and seven, um, and our commercial radio newsrooms, journalism is expensive. Yeah. And if it's funded, 
um, it disappears. Mm. Hey, Leon, do you, do you get the sense but that because the funding is shrinking, as Greg said, that that's creating a narrower gene pool in terms of the output that we are getting? Um, yeah, I do. I, I'm a big fan of the ABC, as I said many times on this podcast. Uh, and as Greg well knows, I've lamented the, uh, the decline of the Australian. Uh, you know, Greg, you said that it was centrist and now it's sort of moved, shifted substantially to the right. I wouldn't actually know anymore because I don't read it. Uh, and I don't read it because I'm pissed off by, uh, by what's happened there, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, for me, the ABC, I just, I feel that the government has, is missing an opportunity or it doesn't really see this as value. But when I was in Southeast Asia, when I was in Sri Lanka, for example, you know, uh, the, you know, the um, ABC's version of, I can't remember what it's called. It's called the Australia Channel. The Australia Channel. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, what is this? Why, is, why can I access this in Sri Lanka? That soft diplomacy is more important now than it has ever been since probably World War II. You know, in terms of winning the hearts and minds, in terms of the soft sell of our values into a region um, that is, you know, that is being filled in um, by autocrats. Yeah, look, I, I, look. I think you know, freedom of speech in media is directly uh, linked to you know democracy and democracy at work. Um, you know, the Australian um, Leon, uh, as, as right as it is, is in, in its commentary and, and presentation, occasionally of opinion has a whole lot of centrist reporting in between. Mm. So is it all stacked uh, in a biased or, or, or right-wing facing way? No, it's not. And I think, um, you know, um, in the same way that uh, people attack the the um, Fairfax um, papers as being left of centre, there's a fair bit of centrist, uh, I would argue, the majority of their reporting is in a straight centrist manner um, and I'd argue the Australian um, as well. Yes, we can pick uh, and debate particular issues that are of the, of the Australian editor's interest where that might not be the case, but I think by and large reporting in Australia is still, um, I don't think it's in the same vein as America, um, the polarising um, far left and far right wing um, you know, media in the States from where I read it, you know, is designed to, um, you know, it, it's almost inciting violence. It's, it's, it's inciting people to take up a very strong view against their fellow Americans. You know, I think Australians would turn off on that, you know, that kind of tribalism, mm. I, you, know, I can, you know, I can't say I can read it in our data because we don't report in that manner, but I'm pretty sure if we did, um, we would see that, that Australians just don't that work in that way. And, you know, if you look at the ABC and its news coverage, um, you know, it is widely supported um, and more so in regional Australia, I think, than the capital cities because they're critical parts of their communities and they're, they're important 
um, you know, uh, um, you know, they're, they're important views. If you look at Alice Springs and the number of working journalists in Alice Springs today, we have two that work for News Corp um, that write for the NT News. Um, you've got, you know, a handful of the ABC. You've got a couple of Alice Springs News um, and one or two others. And, you know, that is it mm. uh, in a town like Alice Springs. Uh, imagine Alice Springs without the ABC Bureau there, you know. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of stories that wouldn't get told. And, yeah. uh, mm. and I think, you know, we we in Darwin as the NT News, um, we, we are criticised for being very Darwin-centric, but we, we do try and travel and we do get out of the Territory. Uh, the ABC too travel around the Territory and that's an important part of their charter um, because there is life below the Berrima line. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's not just life there. It's, uh, yeah. it's pretty part of the uh, territory economy. This is um, diverting somewhat, but having lived in both uh, both cities or towns, Greg, um, I heard a lot of chatter ar- around the election talking about the fact that, uh, and, you know, it, it could be seen in the way that the voting works as well, um, that there really is uh, a north-south Divide not just the Berrima line, but there really is a tangible difference between the the north of the Northern Territory and and the southern part. And obviously, you know, Alice forms a, a major part of that. Um, how does that affect things from a reporting standpoint? Look, I hope it doesn't. But you know, you can see you can see a definite down and rest of territory divide. You know, if you look at the seats where Labor or CLP hold strong majorities, um, you know, those seats are very rusted on for those political parties. The seats that Labor now holds across the northern suburbs um, and the seats that CLP have in, you know, um, Palmerston and, and, and regional parts of the Territory, um, we don't want a government that governs for just one of those sectors. We need a government that governs for all. And I worry that, you know, um, when the Treasury... Um, weighs up where its spending priorities are, that the loudest voices in Darwin are those that get all the attention, that's not great for the Territory. And, um, you know, um, five years ago when the Territory economy really started to slide, you know, a lot of people didn't realise it, but it coincided with the curtailment of the alumina refinery in Gove, the reduction in range of uh, uranium mining operations at at um, Jabiru, um, as well as a reduction in MacArthur River and, and, and other mineral projects. So while you might not see them or feel them or even hear them here in Darwin, um, that was hundreds of millions of dollars of, of economic output in the Territory that sort of vanished. And who felt it the most? Probably not those regional communities. It was Darwin mm. because a lot of Darwin is, um, supplies those areas. So... I'm a big supporter or a big believer in the fact that um, Darwin, Darwin should be supporting regional economic growth in the Territory and I think the regions hold up Darwin. Yes, we're a big centre of administration and it's where our significant public service basically lives, but it's the region, it's those regional economic bases. So I travel to Alice Springs um, a bit. I haven't got there as much this year through COVID, but... I love to see the diversity in that economy. It's got 
pastoralism, tourism, mining, um, you know, uh, Indigenous uh, advancement, a whole range of different things um, that underpin that economy. Um, and it's great to see because, um, you know, we need vibrant, in the same way we need Alice Springs being vibrant, we need the remote communities around it um, also being vibrant because without it, it's all a knock-on, a nasty knock-on effect to, um, you know, communities in decline. And I think you see that, um, you know, that it, it worries me. One of the things that worry me about the future of the territory economy is um, we need a vibrant territory um, regions. And when you see some communities slipping into dysfunction, many of them have been there for a long time, that encourages that shift in people into the major towns, those other communities decline. Um, they're all backward steps for the territory economy, not positive steps. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I see parallels with Alice Springs and Catherine as well, a, a more diversified economy, again, pastoralism, tourism, um, you know, other stronger um, economic base. Um, you know, that's great for the territory. Um, and it's great for instead of sitting here in Darwin waiting for that next big project to come along, um, it's growth of many, many small projects um, that mm. are more than the, the Big Bang Next, Impex or, or indeed, uh, you know, Tobacco Bauxite Mining Gove. Mm, yeah, it's amazing how often we hear that now. Um, Greg, let's look back 12 months. How's the business changed, uh, not just in terms of running the business, but in terms of subscribers, in terms of daily visitors to your website, I would have thought since March this year, um, a news outlet such as the NT News would have become uh, you know, a lot more high profile and a lot more the centre of people's lives when, when we need news as much as ever. We've doubled our subscriber, um, um, total number of subscribers this calendar year. Um, our page views and our time on, on site have grown enormously. We've had a huge, we've had a number of um, peaks over the course of the year, the main one being coronavirus. When coronavirus lockdown occurred, um, the audiences that uh, uh, flocked to our, our, our news pages and our websites was nothing short of phenomenal. Um, you know, and, and we take a lot of heart in that because... Um, it shows that there is an element of strong trust there, you, you know, part with cash. Mm. Um, so, you know, why, why are readers coming to us? We're providing information they can't get elsewhere. So mm. so throughout the, I guess, the lockdown of coronavirus, um, uh, we've seen strong audience growth. Um, and then post that, we then went into that sort of pre-election phase um, in July and into August during the election. Um, you know, anyone who says that Territorians aren't interested in elections, they're not starter. <laughs> you know, we're, we're obsessed with it. Mm. We're obsessed with politics. I don't think anyone really thought there was going to be a change of government, but the prospect of change of government has people tuned in and mm. listening and looking. I think um, I was particularly proud of the NT News coverage a lot of campaign uh, profiles. We tried to, 
you know, we tried to, you know, shed as much light on the individuals and, and policies. It was a bit of a policy-free zone, pretty hard to get <laughs> out of either of the parties. But certainly from the individuals, I think you had a sense of who they were and what they stood for. So we've had this, you know, further peaks leading up to the election in audience, the election itself. And then really, I think it's been the the process, the, the, the government process changes behind the scenes. There haven't been sort of page one stories, but people are fascinated by it. Um, you know, we see a public service-led peak through the course of the day. You know, um, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, we see big, um, you know, spikes in audience that we attribute to, you know, people... Now they're coming to work, done what they need to, they check in, see what's happening through the news. Um, but there's no doubt that whilst coronavirus has been the most, you know, um, terribly damaging impact on our economy, um, it's been the biggest news story of, you know, decades. Yeah. And with it has been a flock. And it isn't just us, Peter. I know the audiences at the ABC, yep. um, other media, all of them, you know, if media are... Um, informing their communities about what's happening with coronavirus this year. They're asleep and going out of business. Yeah. Were you geared up technically for it? Could you handle the um, increased audience to the site? We were. Um, we've got um, our own network um, uh, resources are tremendous. But, you know, one of the things people don't realise about the Territory, we've got a fantastic um, information technology infrastructure, um, mm. you know, on the outskirts of Perth, you know, there's parts where, you know, the MBN doesn't exist. Mm. Territory, um, you know, from Hermansburg um, to the northern suburbs has fantastic internet capability. So we were able to, we sent all of our people home. I did about nine weeks. I think Matt, as editor, did 12 weeks working from his from his, uh, from his lounge room. Um, mm. The use of Zoom, Google Hangouts, um, you know, it's been a bit frightening um, how quickly and how well we've been yes. able to life without an office. Um, I'm a pretty social person. We tried um, Google Hangout drinks one day. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if you've tried it, but, you know, it's all right for the first five minutes. But when that one first drink kicks in and everyone tries to talk over each other, it kind of doesn't work. Um, but certainly the ability of the news team and indeed our sales team to be able to have conversations with customers, um, you know, engage online, pretty phenomenal. Um, and, look, I think it's got property managers right around the world looking at their buildings now wondering yep. why do we spend so much money of our fixed costs on um, these wonderful buildings when mm. I think there's a fine line, you know, I don't want to, you know, I can tell you my... Um, my my university student children were at home during that, and they, you know, we were we were starting to fray around the edges of dad running into um, son and daughter in the hallway, and me dominating the lounge room. And mm. So it wasn't all beer and skittles, but um, but certainly um, technology wise, we were able to respond. Um, we were able to um, meet, I think, the public need for information um, and explain. And look, you know. Uh, I'm a big supporter of how well the Territory Administration um, has responded to COVID. You know, um, 
you know, whether you blame that on one political party or not, I don't think it's really relevant. The people um, at the front at the front line who who manage the COVID response have done a first rate job. Um, and uh, you know, I look at you know we've got News Corp um, products and papers in Victoria, including the Geelong Advertiser, that are nowhere near uh, in the position that we are, having not been through that second lockdown and 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 largely operate, operating COVID free. So I think we owe those um, you know our public service. We owe those first responders a great debt for for um, not just keeping us safe but limiting the economic fallout that, you know, has occurred. Mm. Let's, uh, let's switch uh, gears a bit and start uh, getting, to, getting into some subjects that may be, may be a little bit controversial and, and certainly topical. Yeah. Uh, what's your view on the government's ban of the anti-independent? I mean, I mean, I know they are potentially a competitor, and I know that you have you know, a previous relationship with uh, Chris Walsh, the editor. Uh, but, but what's your view on the way they've been dealing with uh, the anti-independent? Look, you know, I support free speech and I support, you know, we, we wish uh, anti-independent and their journalists um, all the very best. I, you know, I don't think it's a good look for government to be, you know, um, turning off to one media and, and, and responding to others. Um, I guess the only thing I would say is with freedom of speech comes you know, the same right of individuals to talk to or not talk to journalists, uh, whether they're public officials or not. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I think it's, it's challenging for a new media uh, organisation to sort of find its feet and, and, and show its credentials. Um, the government shut down its response to, um, you know, to NT Independent pretty well straight away and blamed it on, you know, the, the proprietor uh, of that of that business rather than the editor in, in Chris Walsh. But, you know, I think, you know, the government's response is a bit blurred around that. Um, you know, uh, I'm not here to tell the Chief Minister, you know, who he, sh- who he should talk to and, and who not, but I think it'd be pretty hard to actually run media in the Northern Territory from a government point of view to deliberately exclude one media outlet. I think you could exhaust a fair bit of stress uh, trying to trying to keep them out. So, um, but you know, we wish them all the best. Um, you know, I think the chief minister. Um, you know, if you're not at the table engaging with people, you're not at the table, are you? Um, so, um, some would see it as a missed opportunity for the government to, you know, have its say. Mm. I'm troubled by it. Uh, I I have no vested interest whatsoever in, in the NT Independent. Um, uh, other than a vested interest as a citizen to want to know what the government's up to from a different perspective. Um, and it's, it's, you know, especially when we see what goes on in other countries and what they do to their journalists uh, and what your experience was with Max Altman. I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> the, the Northern Territory government employs more communication advisors. Oh, than yes. Yeah. So, no. Really, if I, in a perverse kind of way, if I was running media communications these days, I'd almost appoint a media advisor for every one journalist and you could provide one-on-one service to them. <laughs> That's the way the place has changed. Yeah. And it probably some days feels like that. Um, mm-hmm. for the, the manipulation of journalists feels like it is one-on-one 
Um, you know, we we at the NT News, you know, I uh, Chris Chris Welch does spend a lot of time sort of promoting his independence and, and good luck to him, but he does so by criticising other media at the same time. And you know, there's a bit of a myth that the NT News is somehow beholden to government and its vast, uh, uh, you know, revenue. Um, Look, I can, I can tell you, uh, NT government revenues at, uh, for News Corp would be under it'd be under two or three percent. You know, they spend very very little with us. We don't view their um, expenditure as influencing our business in any way, shape, or form. As low as that, two to three percent of your revenue. So you know, I'm not here to cast aspersions, Leon, but I would have thought. You know, Ward Keller legal, um, you know, the NT government um, proportion of business that uh, your own business might have would be a would be a greater share than that, as it would be for a lot of other professional services in town. Um, I, 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 I definitely uh, challenge that uh, immediately because I can tell you one thing: our firm does not chase uh, a government work the way a number of other firms in town do. We don't exist for government work. In fact, we are here for the private sector. That's that's how we enter. Uh, do we do government work? Yes, we do. Uh, but uh, it is only in areas where uh, we are able to service them with particular skill sets. Uh, but we certainly don't. Uh, we don't chase them. Well, you know, we have a print audience and we have an online audience, um, and we offer digital marketing services where we assist government departments to find an audience either in the NT or beyond. And you know, but it's a really small part of what we do. So this notion that we're super defensive or that there's a commercial tie-in between, uh, it fits some journalist narrative to promote their own view, but it's just not born in fact. And, you know, I'm, I challenge you to look at the NT news pages, look for the NT, look for the government advertising mm. uh, and 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 tell me whether I'm, I'm being untruthful, but, like, it's... You know, yeah, two to three percent definitely. You know, is is a, is a that, that that's an amazing stat. I, I wasn't aware of that. If you asked me to guess, I probably would have said you know twenty to thirty percent. So yeah, it's that's amazing. The, that's the myth, you know. But you yeah. know, um, you know, we're a private commercial business, but you know, you can do the math on our revenue of mm. you know, what we you know we we sell eight thousand papers a day. We have eight, you know. Um, you work out our cover price. Uh, we have eight thousand, you know, subscriptions at thirty thirty dollars a month. Um, you know, we we've got advertising revenue. You know, we've got a strong real estate portfolio. We've got a strong motor vehicle. Um, you know, our our retail partnership with Harvey Norman and others. They're the they're the key and the and the the, the, the key pillars to this business. So. Mm. It exists only in the minds of a few journalists that we're up here praying or influencing media coverage to somehow um, promote a positive agenda for whichever government of the day. I suppose part of that came out of uh, when Adam Giles was Chief Minister and he's, I think at one stage, didn't he say he, they were pulling all the advertising from the NT News or something because of bad coverage? I don't remember him doing that. He said, oh, why, why am I thinking that? I thought... I thought they had. Look, if, he, if he did, the world would still come up tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. the reality of it is, is we, you know, our news pages are, you know, and Chris Welch was our political reporter during the Giles era. Our news pages are incredibly 
um, uh, powerful in shaping public opinion. And, you know, we don't take that responsibility lightly. Mm. Uh, it isn't government advertising that holds up government reputation. It's the conduct of government and how, mm. how they operate. And, you know... Um, if you look at uh, if you look at expenditure of, um, I wouldn't even know where to begin. To be honest, Leon, to go and find where you could get a number of government expenditure on advertising, mm. um, but it's pretty it's a pretty small number of what happens today. And um, is the NT News reliant on it to such a degree that it would influence how we report? No. Okay. It's, Let's talk about government because that is a very interesting subject in the NT. Um, you and I have had chats from time to time about the public service, the size of the public service. Um, in fact, you've been on a panel once that uh, I, I um, uh, was involved in and you, you gave your, your thoughts on, on some of this stuff. The current Northern Territory public sector staffing as of June quarter 2020 measured as full-time equivalent, is 21,760 people. Uh, and based on your own reporting, suggests that uh, uh, rather than a public service freeze, we've in fact had a, an increase in the public service over this time. Do you, do you have any thoughts on all the way the public service is being handled in the NT? It concerns me greatly, Leon, and, and it's not because you know I'm, I'm I walk around running the ruler over the size of the public service every day. It really, it really goes to the heart of economic management of the government as a whole, and that is, they made a commitment for fiscal reform, for economic repair, and it seems to me that a one of the objectives in that economic repair is rather than reduce the public sector. Let's use the public sector as an engine of growth for the territory economy. And that, that is all well and good if you can afford it. Mm. Um, but, you know, we're borrowing money to pay for this. And as I say, I, um, you know, in the private sector, when challenges come along, you cut your cloth to suit what's happening in front of you. Um, you know, governments, I think, have a responsibility to do the same thing. Um, don't ask me why, but I was reading the Self-Government Act um, uh, a couple of weeks ago <laughs> um, and I was particularly interested in the section there around um, borrowing and the ability of the Territory to borrow. And when you read it, it makes pretty interesting reading and it makes it very clear that the Commonwealth Treasurer has to approve any borrowings um, and it makes it very clear that the Commonwealth underwrites all such borrowings. So, you know, we reported last year that, you know, there's no point in having an economic rating by Moody's or, or the like on the Territory economy because we are effectively underwritten by the Commonwealth. But my question is where, where does that Commonwealth largesse come to an end? Um, and at what point behind closed doors is the under-treasurer of the Northern Territory having with the under-treasurer uh, in Canberra that says... Global borrowing limits need to end at some point, and that the um, years of budget deficits that we're facing in front of us really have to be addressed. And that, you know, I'm a pretty uh, reasonable person. It doesn't keep me awake at night, Leon, I've got to tell you. It doesn't cause me stress. But what it goes to, I think, is confidence in the territory. 
um, you know, can we see a pathway out of, you know, um, you know, can we see a pathway forward for uh, economic um, growth? And, you know, I think that's going to be challenging if our government um, isn't making hard decisions about its own expenditure. And I, um, you know, what keeps me awake at night is growth in territory economy and confidence in the place. You know, we're seeing an improvement in the real estate market, which which links to, to confidence, which is great. Um, but I also see business operators who worry that, you know, the self-government that we were granted in 1978 when I was in primary school and stood in the stood in the uh, school grounds and watched Paul Everingham, you know, hoist the uh, the territory flag, um, that, you know, maybe the next few years we could be looking at a whole whole different form of administration if we get to a point where the Commonwealth says we will no longer allow um, this continued, uh, you know, borrowing uh, on a significant scale with no real plan to address um, expenditure. So that does worry me. What's interesting about that, Greg, is that uh, we have asked former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull about that, and we've also asked, what was Professor's name, Leon? Can you recall? Uh, we had an, one, one of the economists that we had on, yes. and both of them, word for word, said Commonwealth aren't interested and money's cheap. Yeah, I, I just uh, I've heard that, and I heard I heard Mr. Turnbull say that, but there is a point upon which, um, if the Commonwealth needs to um, step in and relieve the territory of debt, that will come with a price. Yeah, and a price we don't want. So I accept that you know the Reserve Bank may put interest rates down again. The the, the rumor is, or, or the speculation is, is very shortly. Um, but, you know, that, does that mean we can keep borrowings unfettered? And does it mean, you know, is, should um, one of the economic um, uh, reconstruction strategies for the Territory, should it be continued growth of the public service? Mm. I, I don't think it should. Um, and that, that's what concerns me is the cost of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I was staggered that... that the, the reaction has been there's no appetite for the Commonwealth to intervene. But if, you know, as we'd said to both of them, if the debt continues to escalate at a level that seems as though it's just endless, and as, as Malcolm Turnbull himself said, structural deficits are, are, are no way, you know, to run any type of organisation, let alone a government, at some point you have to think that, that they're going to have to get interested because they're responsible for the debt. Look, if I also see parallels, what have we done in our business in, our, in the private sector, not just News Corp but other businesses have done, you know, managing your costs is, is crucial and doing things in a more innovative way. Um, you know, I saw some data the other day about, you know, how many of our, what proportion of the public service in the education department the teachers, and it isn't a vast majority. It should be, you know, but it isn't. Mm. Well, I think the next challenge for government is look at the cost of administration. And we know that things like the, our police force is an expensive business when you've got population spread over large areas, you know. But, 
you know, where is, you know, why are we developing our own um, IT system for the Northern Territory Police that cost hundreds of millions when surely we can borrow the WA government system or the AFP system? You know, yeah. why do we need bespoke Northern Territory systems? Um, you know, again, you know, we've only, we've only got a handful of public hospitals. Um, you know, why could not another interstate jurisdiction assist us in the administration of our public hospitals to reduce costs? You know, they're, they're the kind of things. It's not, it's not giving up self-government. It's looking for different ways. Um, you know, I, I, I've got an interesting perspective on ICAC. You know, I, I don't think we should have formed a territory ICAC. I think we should have went to another jurisdiction and given them a big bucket of money and said, do what you do in your state but include the Northern Territory because you're going to be able to investigate the Northern Territory perhaps in a more efficient manner than starting up a whole new bureaucracy um, of ICAC on its own. So, you know, there's things that I think we need to... That is the elephant. The elephant in the room is that we shouldn't employ public servants to do things just because it's good for the economy. If there's a more efficient way of administering government, we should be looking at it and talking about it and debating it because um, paying, um, paying public servants to do a job just to keep um, the lights on in uh, particular floors of, the, of government departments, it, it's just not, it's just not um, feasible. And it will eventually um, lead to such an erosion of public finances that we won't have a choice or a debate in the future. Well, that's only one part of the conversation too, Greg, because, uh, you know, looking at numbers is one thing, but then looking at the increases in wages. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the entire public service, except for the executive contract officers, as I understand it, got a 2.5% pay rise last month. Yeah. Look, in our business, um, Leon, salaries have been flat or backward over yeah. the past five years. Yeah. Um, you know, um, I don't think it's just a product of the Labor government. I think, you know, the um, public service wages go up under any government. Yep. And the Territory's not alone. I saw it in, um, before the WA election a few years ago as well. But there is a point where we've got to say, can we afford this? And, you know, if the difference between providing another 150 to 200 employees to fight COVID-19 this year was to ask all the rest of the public service to forego a pay rise, wouldn't have that been a better outcome for the Territory taxpayer? Employ those additional public servants that we need for frontline services, but fund it from, 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 a, from a pay rise, not from just going back to the well to borrow more money. And I just think... You know, that, that lack of urgency, um, the budget crisis that the Territory is facing is two to three years old this year mm. without any real meaningful response. So you recall those crocodile draws that talked about, you know, $30 billion debt, you know. Um, you know, I'd love to see that analysis get run today. Um, three years on, those crocodile draws are still there. Um, there's been no meaningful, um, uh, if you look at the recommendations of the Langolan report, um, there hasn't been much response um, and I accept that there's been a whole range of new challenges come along the way but, um, you know, this this needs to be 
uh, a priority of this government. Um, not because Territorians are awake at night about the cost of their government, but it's about how the future operation of the Territory government and, mm. and confidence in our administration that, you know, we're, we're here for the long haul. Well, uh, yeah, I'm just looking at some of the numbers here. Uh, it's just extraordinary, mate. You know, an AO1, an, an so it's at the bottom of the bottom rung, uh, starting salary is $51,184. Now, any, I can... Leon, you won't find any AO1s. It's, you yes. Know, you won't find many AO2s either. It generally starts at AO3. Yes. And... You know, um, it's a significant cost. And look, it's one of our biggest, um, you know, for competition for staff. Um, you know, the government government sector, and it's not just top line salary numbers. Um, we get four weeks annual leave at News Corp. We don't get six. Yes. Um, you know, we have a range of different um, uh, conditions. And look, um, I'm not about to advocate the reduction in public service. Uh, annual leave, but I do think there needs to be some realism, not just on the part of government, but the unions that represent them, that says we need some wage restraint if we want to grow and hold public service numbers where they are. But what's the point of the six weeks leave? I mean, I understand the historical significance of that, which was way back when in the 70s, you know, when you, your Greg dad just, was... Dr- Greg just described it. He, he lived the reason why they had it. That's it right. It took you three days to get to Catherine. Yes, right? So we get that. But, you know, air travel has been a feature of the Territory for at least 20, 30-odd years, uh, yet there's still the six weeks annual leave. Now, okay, um, you, as you said, you don't want to take uh, benefits away from public servants that, are, you know, that have been given to them. But surely you can draw a line in the sand and say, right, oh, from now on, any new public servants that are employed, four weeks, like everybody else. I think it would have been a really strong economic message. Some, you know, the political purists would have said maybe it might have cost, a, you know, a handful of votes in those seats that, that, that decided the outcome of the last election. But to pay the August increase in, in public service salaries and both political parties um, committing to not cutting the public service numbers was gutless. It really was completely gutless. Completely gutless. Yeah, completely gutless. Basically, saying we're not going to um, put our heads in the jaws here by um, messing with this um, with this community. But you know, I think many of these public servants are pretty smart, bright people. Yes, they are. They mm-hmm. can count. And the same way that many people in the private sector who've been sat down with their boss and said uh, business has been tough. Um, you know, there isn't any money for increases this year or indeed for some people who've taken 5 or 10 or even 15% cuts in salaries um, to help their organisations through. There's none of that conversation occurring um, in public service and I think it's the absolute lowest hanging fruit yes. when it comes to managing um, the cost of government. Mm. And, I th- and, you know, what's worse is I think it will happen, Leon, I think, We'll hear about, you know, tremendous dust-ups between um, territory unions and, and the public service because um, it was a political um, decision to ignore the elephant in the room this year. But I think that elephant, you know, needs to be, will be sized up in the next yeah. year. Well, I've heard two stories this week 
of private sector people that have or are looking to move into the public service because the conditions and the wages are better. You know, I know of a couple of people myself this week who, who I've had that very same conversation with, this perception that it's a safe harbour. Mm. Um, and, look, it's a growth industry, isn't it? There's a lot going on. There's, there's different agencies with huge pressure. You know, I understand what's happened with territory families and I understand policing and I understand what's happened through COVID, but when you consider our baseline public service was, you know, 14,000, um, you know, compared to the 21 or 22,000 is today, the territory population hasn't changed that dramatically in that time, um, but the size of the public service has. And um, mm. say that that drain on the territory taxpayer, um, and the the eventual day that will come in the form of a Commonwealth trade-off when we eventually, you know, perhaps not a bailed out, but certainly, you know. Um, uh, a rewriting of the Self-Government Act to, to rein in um, territory borrowing. So, you know, I don't think that's that far away. Well, look, on, uh, on a slightly different but related subject, uh, Indigenous Territorians. Um, I read a really interesting article in the Territory Quarterly today about Marion Scrimger and the NLC and what they're doing. Uh, and what they did during the pandemic, uh, which was to get Indigenous Territorians back to the communities as fast as possible. And they were celebrating the fact that not a single Indigenous uh, Territorian has had COVID-19, right? But one, of the one of the lines out of that article that grabbed my attention was the fact that there were some Indigenous Territorians that hadn't been back to their community in 20 or 30. years. It's they, were the, they, were, they are the long grasses. Yeah, and look, I think, I think the legacy of that, you know, firstly, I think um, the move back to country as a safeguard against COVID-19 was, was, was a smart strategy and it worked and it kept territory into remote areas safe. And we know that with the myriad of health um, issues that affect remote communities that COVID um, in remote communities would have been devastating and not not just, not just devastating on those communities but the Territory Health Service as a whole. So, um, you know, so that's, so that's tremendous. Um, look, I think um, the biggest issue, you know, confronting the Territory beyond the cost of government and so forth is how do we make our remote communities viable and how do we promote economic growth how do we engage more Indigenous Territorians in all facets of the economy, not just small components of the economy? There's still too many non-Indigenous Territorians working in roles in remote communities that should be done by Indigenous people in those communities. And, you know, I think if I look back on, um, uh, you know, I was really struck when I returned from Perth comparing what the Territory was when I went to school compared to what it is today, that there's parts of the Northern Territory where the current generation of, of uh, Indigenous Territories' education might be worse off than their, than their parents. And I'm not sure if there's many places in the world where that's the case. And 
When I was um, when I was growing up in Nullumboy, Leon, my um, my grandparents worked at a uh, indigenous boarding house called Dupama College, um, which is the site where the current Gama Festival is held every year. And it was an indigenous boarding college, partly funded, I think, mainly by the feds, but there was territory government. It was a territory government decision, I think, to close it. Um, but it brought teenagers from right across from Numbawa, Nuka uh, in the Gulf. Uh, to provide a secondary education um, in Nullumboy. And some of the great leaders of East Arnhem Land uh, are products of that school and it got closed in the late 80s um, and, uh, uh, sorry, late 70s, um, which left Camilda College as the only boarding college of its kind for remote areas. And, you know, what the, f- the number one thing that I think we've failed to deliver in remote communities is, is a quality education for Indigenous Territorians. And there's a whole range of reasons for it, but I think not the least being that it's a real challenge to pick up half a dozen kids or a dozen kids and provide um, a, a proper education environment for those children um, across such vast areas. So... You know, I think the number one thing we can do to improve uh, Indigenous economy is is an absolute wholehearted, um, much better effort um, in educating um, young Indigenous Territorians. And I, and I draw a distinction, Liam, I'm not talking about Alice Springs residents or Tennant Creek residents. I'm talking about people that live in remote areas. And I think um, we do have to come to the... Um, grasp the fact that the most efficient way of delivering education for those kids is probably in a bigger town. So, you know, we don't run country schools in New South Wales, South Australia anymore for 10 and 12 kids. We bus them, we fly them, we, we, we send them to boarding schools. And, and, and probably, you know, one of my great passions, I, I'm a firm believer in we need boarding school at the earliest years of school, not at the end. You know, we should be bringing young Indigenous children as young as five into into caring, loving environments where not only can we look after their education, we can look after health, we can look after housing, um, and we do so in a way that delivers an outcome for them to be able to return to their communities. Um, so Malcolm Turnbull and... Uh and uh, Samuel um, Roussos and others would say, we've been uh, telling Indigenous Territorians, in fact, Indigenous Australians, what to do for 200 years. It's about time we stop doing that and we uh, sit down and speak with them and ask them what they want. My major dilemma with all of this is I completely understand that and I do have some sympathy for those views. Um, I just, I think about Craig Glass once again and what he said when he was on this podcast, which was, yes, we've got, you know, 60-odd students, I think, I can't remember the exact number. Um, Two of them are going to succeed. And the root cause of that is that they are the only two that have someone in their community that is adamant that they stay where they are and get that education. So 
I, I agree with I agree with that. But I guess what I'm saying is we've got to try a different model. The the model that currently exists of um, some services in some communities but not all doesn't work. And you know we're sending an army of territory family staff out to these communities to fix up welfare issues. Um, what if we focus that effort around educating young children, caring for the young children, involving the remote communities in the management of their children in towns like Alice Springs, Catherine, Mullumboy and Darwin? Um, I'm not suggesting people move into town and stay in town. I'm suggesting that that delivery of, um, you know, anyone who has anything to do with early childhood knows that those first formative years of school are the critical years. We have to build education resilience in those kids. And if we're doing it by the time they're 10 and 11 and 12, it's too late. And, you know, two, three or even four years of, of sustained, you know, um, primary school education in the right environment will set many of these students up. And, you know, there's areas of the Territory, um, you know, I'm not, not going to call them out because it's, it's divisive, but there's areas with very, very poor literacy and numeracy and other parts of the Territory with comparatively higher literacy and numeracy. And that's, that's just shameful. You know, it's one Territory, but there's parts that are operating at very different speeds. And my son is 21 and my daughter's 19. And, you know, um, they've got a better education than me and I'm, I'm grateful for that. But, you know, nowhere in the world should we be turning out people with a lesser education than their parents or grandparents. And in some territory communities where, um, you know, and that's my experience in Eastern Unland, um, that there are people with fewer education opportunities today. And I don't criticise the community for that. I criticise the lack of infrastructure and the lack of opportunity for these kids to, um, to, to, to thrive in an education environment. And, that for me is, you know, the holy grail for the Northern Territory is that we everyone get the same opportunity. Um, I was educated at Nullumboy Preschool and Nullumboy Area School, then the primary school, then the high school in the 70s and 80s, but other now 50-year-old Territorians in, the, in remote parts of Arnhem Land didn't get the same opportunity. And some of their children have had an even lesser opportunity. We're going to fix that. Mm. And if, you, if you talk to someone like Kendall Trudgeon, they'll tell you, why do they need to learn, you know, white man's ways and, and our education? Uh, it doesn't help them. What, what helps them is what's in their communities and, and, and learning and, and how amazing it is and how, uh, you, know, you know, there are, there are laws and, cult and, and culture and that, that is far more... Um, important to them and their way of living than, than what we can teach them. So this is where I'm totally confused. Like, you know. <laughs> I, I, you know, this is not Greg Thompson, you know, uh, raging from the pulpit. You know, I talk to Indigenous leaders. I've never met an Indigenous um, person that doesn't believe in education. You can debate the method or how we achieve it, whether it's in first language, English as first language first or in their own language. I don't think that's the debate. We all acknowledge that um, a key to all young people getting ahead in life is, is, is an education. It's a basic right. Um, and 
we're doing a great disservice to to large numbers of territory kids um, that aren't getting that opportunity. So I'm imploring government to look for more innovative ways to do it. And we we've tr- we've tr- we're trialing. You know, there's boarding schools in Nullumboy. There's boarding um, uh, facilities in Alice Springs for secondary age students. Um, but where's that opportunity for younger kids when, um, you know, I look at the quality of housing, um, the quality of infrastructure in some of those uh, uh, Central Australian remote communities and I'd argue they're not fit, they're not great places for five-year-olds to live. So, you know, why can't we assist those five and six and seven-year-olds with with the support of their communities to get an education in town, um, be looked after, be loved, um, be uh, educated, um, and then complete, you know, maintain those linkages with those communities and, and present the pathways back um, to employment in those communities. If we don't do it, there'll be nothing there for those communities when they're adults anyhow because we need economic governments are running out of money to spend in those communities. Um you know, there isn't, you know, a magic tap of money that will continue to support those communities. So we need economic development in those communities for them to uh, for them to prosper and for the whole of the Territory to prosper. And, you know, I think it's the number one, you know, I, I, I'm not pessimistic about it. I think, I think, it's, uh, I think it's a challenge um, and I think we know, um, you know, there's some great educators out there doing amazing work at, um, at many different um, public and private colleges across the territory, but it's you know we're majoring in the minors with small numbers, as Craig Glass talked about. Um, we're not we're not dealing with it at a, at a mainstream numbers level. I think you've both got a really interesting perspective on it. I think you both want the best outcome. I'm not sure that we can figure out the answer that, during this conversation, but. Man, it's so worthwhile because yeah, I think we all know at the end of the day, a, a good education is is what everyone needs and should desire. And look, you know, you mentioned Kendall Trudgeon saying what what he had said. I, I hope we didn't misread that, and we're doing him a disservice. And he's saying that they that they need that plus a traditional education. I I, I really hope and pray that he said that. I'll give you one personal anecdote. Um, from, I guess, a family of, of pro-boarding people. Uh, my wife went to boarding school at 13 and still bears the scars of it. Her mother went to boarding school when she was seven and still bears the scars of it. And her mother went to boarding school when she was five and she wore the scar- scars of it until she died. Um, but... Uh, yeah, what you just described in terms of the loving environment and setting them up for life, um, the theory is great. It's just how we actually make it work that's that's the big question. Yeah, and look, I, you know, I'm not suggesting for a moment that life in every remote community is a hellhole for five-year-olds, but for some it is, and yes. I, I imagine for those kids, the opportunity and memories um, will be far greater, and mm-hmm. I just meant the fact that a child who's born in 2020 today um, in Darwin um, gets a completely different opportunity to one born in Ariane 
Arionga mm. in Central Australia or Ewan Damu and that is the community of Ewan Damu really properly set up for, um, you know, taking large numbers of young children and, and providing not just education but proper housing and a nurturing environment. And, you know, I've never been to boarding school, um, but it does conjure up images of, you know, dark dorms where girls <laughs> are dying in their sleep at night. But, you know, pretty sure in 2020, um, why couldn't we make <clears throat> remote education a growth industry for territory communities where we employ um, families from you and the mood to run these schools in Alice Springs or um, that we bring people in from remote communities across Island land to operate them in Nullamboy. Mm. Certainly outsiders running it. We want their families involved. But I just think there's an efficiency, a lack of efficiency and effectiveness in our current um, education delivery model um, and sending young first-year-out teachers to places like Borrelula, which is what my wife did in 1988, you know, just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, and I guess on a on a final note on that, I will say that um, I do have a recently turned five year old. That when you do get one of these boarding schools set up, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'd say I'd say that they're not eligible, you know, because I'm, I'm I'm talking specifically about remote area residents. So. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> Greg, it's been great having you on the podcast. Uh, you know, it's always good to uh, to, to banter and uh, and occasionally to uh, you know to poke each other <laughs> with a sharp object. But uh, I think uh, I think it's, it's it's been very instructive, and uh, and uh, I, you know I hope we can have you on again at some stage in the future to uh, perhaps talk about these subjects uh, in. Uh, in a way that, that would suggest that they have progressed. That would be great. And, look, what what I forgot to do at the start, Leon, was actually congratulate you both on the success of the podcast. Um, you know, if I look at what's what's the total number now in the series? 100 and... 160 now, I think. Yeah. So I, I can't say I've listened to every one of them, but I've listened to a good many of them. And it's been time that's robbed me of being able to listen to all. But, um, you know, you've, fast, you've interviewed some amazing Territorians and told their stories. And I, I'm frequently gobsmacked about what I learn about people who I thought I knew everything about them already. So um, you do a great job and uh, please keep doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. That was Greg Thompson from the NT News on the Territory Story Podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms, the Territory Story Podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.